Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Got a lot to talk about today, so grab your stool and join the conversation. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. Starting, of course, with our good one. And this one's a little nuanced, but we think it's good in a couple of different ways. Uh, First of all, Jim, uh, the FBI is at it again when it comes to looking for classified documents in the possession of President Biden. This time, out at the Beach House. Here's Kristen Welker from NBC News. According to three sources familiar with this matter, FBI uh, agents, as we speak, are searching President Biden's Rehoboth Beach home for classified documents. This comes, of course, after there have been a discovery of a number of batches of documents at his think tank here in Washington and also at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. And Jim, if that weren't enough, there's now kind of a turf war between the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Department of Justice. The DOJ saying last week they don't plan to give away any details of what's in these documents to the Intelligence Committee until their work with them is done. That is not sitting well with the committee, which is run by Democrats. Mark Warner of Virginia is uh, the chairman. They're considering subpoenas which would be a pretty significant escalation uh, with a Justice Department run by the same party. Uh, Mark Warner saying, quote, the committee not getting any additional guidance. It's not much different than what I've been hearing over the preceding weeks. So, Jim, what do you make of uh, the breaking news today and the larger fight here among uh, Democrats on the Hill and Democrats in the administration? Yes. And I think, Greg, you and I can, you know, say with a great deal of confidence and authority that Virginia Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, is not a member of the vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, He is not somebody who's got an axe to grind against the Biden administration. He is not somebody who's going to go out of his way to create a political headache for the Biden team. So if he's saying, hey, guys, you got to show us this stuff, then he really means it. This is not, they really are being, you know, uh, obstinate and ridiculous. And, you know, I was thinking back to uh, back when Hillary got in trouble for the uh, classified documents on her private server. President Obama at the time did an interview with then Fox News anchor Chris Wallace. Boy, a lot's changed in a couple of years. Right? <laughs> um, and, you know, Wallace brought this up and Obama said, well, there's classified and then there's classified. And, the you know, the contention there is that, you know, yes, there are a lot of documents that either have con- classified information or are considered classified But the stuff in them is not all that secret. It may even be well known to the public. And thus, you know, writing about it, talking about it, etc. isn't really what we usually think of when we think about leaking classified information or something like that. So, you know, it's conceivable that these documents aren't really that big a deal. Undoubtedly, the Biden team would like us to think of them that way. Or maybe there's some really, you know, top secret important stuff in there. The sort of stuff that nobody in their right mind would ever take out of an office. We just don't know. We don't have a security clearance. We can't be the ones who can judge that. But somebody like Mark Warner and other folks on the Senate Intelligence Committee, they do have the clearance and they can look at this and they can perhaps shed some light on this and say, yes, this is a very big deal or, eh, you know, the stuff that's in there isn't that big a deal. The fact that the Biden team doesn't and the Department of Justice do not want to tell the Senate Intelligence Committee what's in these documents makes me suspect this is not, you know, uh, tiddlywinks, you know, small stuff. This is probably something significant and consequential. And that would explain why there's a whole bunch of foot dragging about disclosing what actually was found in these sorts of things. And then just on the notes about the searches, 
from the very beginning, we were like, well, why were Biden's personal lawyers going through the documents at the, the Penn Biden Center? Uh, why wouldn't the FBI do that? The contrast with Trump, et cetera. Well, you know, my, my suspicion had been that uh, Biden's lawyers and Biden's personal associates started thinking, huh, maybe we brought some of that classified documents to our files, too. Um, well, you know, now we find out, oh, the FBI did go through them. I'm glad to know that. But now this this administration and the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, who keep insisting that they've been totally transparent about everything, now has to say, oh, by the way, back in November, the FBI was looking through here. Huh. Really? As CBS News, you know, <laughs> says with like with almost comic understatement, the FBI search of the think tank was not previously disclosed by the White House or Mr. Biden's personal attorneys or by the Department of Justice. Right? <laughs> and then looking at the stuff today, like as soon as we said uh, that it was, you know, stuff that, that as soon as it was reported that Biden's personal home had documents in the garage. Well, Biden has two homes in Delaware, right? One's at Rehoboth Beach. That's the beach house. And so the thinking was, well, if he's got stuff there, would he have, you know, would he have other documents there? You know, we don't know how extensively document, you know, when you work at senator for, you know, decades and then you're vice president for eight years, you accumulate a lot of papers. How thoroughly did everybody search them? Well, I'm glad that they had uh, uh, gone through them. Uh, but it's interesting that Biden's lawyers said last month they had discovered no class out information by looking through the, the Rehoboth Beach home. And now the Department of Justice is saying, you know what? We'd like to do our own check and we'd like to go there, too. So, uh, again, this is another indication that they have not been you know, fully forthcoming and disclosed every detail of this. Better late than never on the part of the Department of Justice. We'll see what they find for something that the Biden administration really wants everyone to see as an innocent mistake. And, you know, uh, nothing to see here, you know, uh, a real non-story. We do keep getting this drip, drip, drip. Uh, of more searches and more documents being found here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, it's fascinating. Jim, my math is not great, but I believe February 1st is later than January 12th, and that's the date that Corinne Jean-Pierre said, they've searched everything. There's no more revelations to come. And then I, we might have had the garage uh, discovery by then. We certainly did not have the uh, inside-the-house document discovery, and we don't know if they're going to find anything here in Rehoboth. Uh, we'll find out, uh, I guess, uh, relatively soon. But... Uh, not quite as done as she thought it was back then. Greg, the documents are coming from inside the house. <laughs> Have they checked the glove box of the vet? Uh, you know, next to the <laughs> glass cases for the Ray-Bans and maybe some ice cream cone remnants with some ice cream melted in there somehow. Um, I don't know if there's more documents in there or not. But uh, like you said, uh, maybe the fact that the DOJ is not talking means that there's something uh, really not good for Joe Biden here. I suspect that if uh, there's nothing uh, that's an absolute smoking gun, the, the, the Senate Democrats will probably do their best to, to cover for him. Uh, so unless there's something that says, hey, you're going to pay Hunter this much and I'll do this as vice president, uh, he's, he's probably not going to face too much trouble, at least legally. Politically, I guess it could be a different story. All right, on to our great sponsor for the day, and that is uh, Liver Health. Look, you know, we talk about alcohol all the time with the liver, and that's not good for it, especially in abundance. But it also, uh, you know, struggles to deal with cholesterol, or if you're a smoker, all that stuff builds up. It can give you fatty liver, and you need your liver to be performing at peak levels. So it's time to help your liver. You know, Greg, I actually just completed Dry January. And I intend to enjoy really wet February soon, but I'm still going to keep an eye on my liver. And there is a solution called Liver Health Formula. It's an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that will help recharge and protect your liver. 
It's manufactured right here in the United States, and it's approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll get a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. And then you're also getting four free e-books to support every aspect of your health. So try Liver Formula. So try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash martini and claim your five free bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And I would love to say this is a huge shock. It's not a huge shock. This is something that's been looked at a lot. I would imagine we'll get a statement from perhaps Rand Paul soon on something like this. But the inspector general for the Department of Health and Human Services is out with a new bombshell report with a uh, long title that says the National Institutes of Health and EcoHealth Alliance did not effectively monitor awards and subawards, resulting in missed opportunities to oversee research and other deficiencies. Now, clearly they need an editor just for their cover sheet, but nonetheless, here's what it says. The Inspector General for the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, this is from Hannah Jones of the White Coat Waste Project, just released a new bombshell report that specifically examined three grants the NIH, National Institutes of Health, made to the notorious nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance that they were using as a pass-through organization to cover their tracks. EcoHealth was given $8 million between 2014 and 2021, some of which went to the Wuhan lab. The IG's audit found a lack of oversight by the NIH and EcoHealth not only at the Chinese facility, but also in other labs that received these government grants. Quote, although NIH and EcoHealth had established monitoring procedures, we found deficiencies in complying with those procedures, limited NIH and EcoHealth's ability to effectively monitor federal grant awards and subawards, to understand the nature of the research conducted, identify potential problem areas, and take corrective action. So, Jim, that's the onion peeling back layer by layer very slowly. What do you make of the latest? It's not exactly surprising. It is nice to see the uh, inspector general confirming what many people had suspected. And, and from very early on in the you know trail leading back to the lab leak theory, I heard the argument that, well, it made sense for the U.S. to fund research like this and to fund organizations that were doing joint projects, including Chinese labs. Because this was a backdoor way of knowing what they were working on. And I'm open to that argument. That there's, I can see the logic in it. That China is unsurprisingly exceptionally secretive about what its national labs are working on. So if you want to keep tabs on it, if you want to get a little bit of a peek inside the door, maybe one of the ways is that you uh, co-fund you know, some other organization like EcoHealth Alliance. And EcoHealth Alliance then reaches out to the Chinese and says, hey, let's do some projects together. And then in the process of exchange information on the work of those projects, you get a little bit of a sense of what Chinese scientific experts and, and government research programs are interested in, where they're focusing their energies and their dollars, what they're prioritizing, what they want to find, and stuff like that. And in theory, that makes sense. I think it's safe to say this did not work out as intended. Uh, now, of course, some folks would insist that it's, you know, there's no proof that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the source of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just entirely coincidental that the pandemic began in a major crowded city that had not one but two government-funded research facilities that were doing gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses. It could happen anywhere. It just happened to happen down the road from one of those facilities. Um, I, I, the other thing, which, again, I, having read a whole lot about EcoHealth Alliance, their researchers 
First of all, they, they've had all kinds of cases where they've chosen not to wear masks, not to wear all the full protective equipment when they're going out into the field and collecting the samples. And you want to think about like just the scenario where you're most likely to encounter some virus that is, you know, uh, previously unknown to human immune systems and likely to be very dangerous to human immune systems. That's the circumstance. Um, but EcoHealth Alliance, uh, you know, really seemed to think, well, we the way we could prevent the world's next terrible pandemic is by collecting as much information as possible about these kinds of viruses. Well, the problem is that you keep sending human beings out to collect more of them, to find them, then the chances of an accidental infection get higher. And trying to put together the world's biggest stockpile of viruses, well, now you got all kinds of viruses in one place. Yes, I know the Chinese say they're very careful, but there are all kinds of reports that indicate, actually, no. And in fact, certainly for the first couple of years of operation of this lab, it wasn't really built uh, it was really a level two biosafety level facility when it really needed to be a biosafety level four facility. Oh, by the way, there are those internal memos from doctors within and researchers within the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology who said that they didn't have enough trained staff to properly do these procedures. That certainly sounds ominous. And then you have a situation in which you're doing gain of function research, which as listeners no doubt know, this is when you take an existing virus, which has some level of danger of uh, of uh, of contagiousness and you decide to make it more contagious and potentially more dangerous to uh, to human beings. The, uh, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, like, well, you're basically trying to build a super virus. And the argument of all kinds of virologists is like, look, if you want us to be able to stop the really dangerous viruses, we need to be able to study the really dangerous viruses, which means in some cases we need to create the really dangerous viruses. A whole bunch of people look at that and say, you're creating a danger that did not previously exist. And a lot of us look at what happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, what we know about it, the secrecy around it, China's utter refusal to cooperate with international investigations. And we say, hmm, this all adds up to a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to Chinese research being the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, which killed on the official count 7 million by all kinds of other accounts, many more millions than that. And that's where we are. So I'm glad the inspector general did this report. It is frustrating and depressing. And I really don't have much faith that the Biden administration really wants to pick a fight over this. Well said, Jim. And I think the argument that, well, we've got to create these viruses to figure out how to stop them. The odds that if you're not the bad guy, that the bad guy would alter the virus in the exact same way. I mean, I don't know how many different ways there are to alter it, but it seems like that would be unlikely to be the exact same situation. Maybe your treatment would do some good in that situation, but it seems like a, a fairly flimsy excuse. And there's been some reporting over time that the Chinese are actually trying to develop uh, bioweapons that target specific genetics or ethnicities. And if somebody had the temerity to write a novel about that, uh, <laughs> it'd be a, a fascinating page turner. Well, yeah, th thank you for that uh, <laughs> subtle or perhaps not so subtle plug of Hunting Four Horsemen. Um, the book, the book, you know, the novel is is just meant to be a fun thriller. But there's a, it's about as Michael Crichton as I get. It's frightening. And my my thing is that you look at this, somebody out there is working on this. I, I or somebody out there, no doubt, wants to develop this. And once you begin reading about it, the you know hurdles of creating and engineering a virus like that really aren't that hard. Like China has unbelievable resources to put into a project like this, but you wouldn't need all the resources of the Chinese government to do something like that. And Lord knows the world has plenty of hateful people who'd like to see those people picking out one ethnic group 
uh, and seeing them all eventually killed off or, or, you know, rapidly dwindling population because of some terrible virus. So hopefully that remains in the realm of fiction and speculative fiction. But uh, just, I, I, as soon as I read about that, I was like, mm, this is a problem we're going to be dealing with somewhere down the road. And I think one of the reasons people don't think about it too much is because it's so darn scary. Yeah. Um, hey, happy Tuesday, everybody. <laughs> And while we're at it, you know, between two scorpions, hunting four horsemen, gathering five storms, they're all out there. Go get them. They're good reads. All right. On to our crazy martini now. And uh, Jim, we knew this time was going to come. We've we've even foreshadowed it uh, at various points here in the last few weeks. But we're into February now. And that means uh, politicians are getting itchy about their plans for 2024. And certainly that's true on the presidential trail. Most of the the discussion and the debate right now is involving Trump and DeSantis. Trump, of course, is in. DeSantis has uh, been very quiet about presidential ambitions. We all assume that he's uh, likely to go for it. And there are some reports that he's uh, quietly putting staff together and so forth. But generally staying out of the political fray for the most part right now. Uh, however, there are others who are planning to get in. Nikki Haley announced last night that she's going to announce on February 15th. Not sure why you would announce that far ahead of time, but whatever. Um, she certainly brings a, a decent resume to the party. Whether she brings a lot of support is another question. Then there's former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Just left office a couple of weeks ago. Pretty much never Trumper. I never voted for him and uh, was pretty pretty adversarial uh, as far as Republicans go all along the way. He was on Neil Cavuto's program uh, yesterday on the Fox News Channel, and uh, it doesn't take a genius to read these tea leaves either. There's talk that you will be among those candidates. Is that true? Well, I'm certainly giving it uh, very serious consideration. You know, we've been really successful 30 miles outside of Washington where everything appears to be broken and nothing but divisiveness and dysfunction. I'm in a, one of the bluest states in the country with a 70% progressive legislature, and I got them to cut taxes eight years in a row by $4.8 and I had the biggest economic turnaround in America. So we're, we're taking a close look at it. So if you stack up Republican governors in recent years, and there's only been two in Maryland in our lifetimes here, Jim, the other one being Bob Ehrlich, Larry Hogan looks pretty good against the likes of Martin O'Malley and Paris Glendenning and, and people like that. But in terms of his positioning in this race, I feel like the question, I mentioned this in our email earlier today, does the Larry Hogan candidacy count as an in-kind contribution to Donald Trump? Because that's about the only thing it's going to accomplish. Yeah. You know, interestingly, there's been for quite a few cycles in a row, some role of some, you know, long shot Republican candidate, usually advised by John Weaver. And ironically, the candidate is usually named John. It could be John McCain, could be John Huntsman, could be John Kasich, who ends up running as the Republican candidate for people who don't really like Republicans. And they end up getting endorsed by institutions like the New Republic, uh, I believe on The View, um, Kasich or Huntsman got some very warm, you know, welcome. Problem is the Republican nominee is not selected by the New Republic or the ladies on The View. And these candidates named John usually crash and burn. Uh, McCain did, you know, obviously managed to get the uh, nomination in 2008. But he had, you know, had much less success, you know, uh, eight years earlier when he was running as the not so conservative alternative to George W. Bush and also beloved by the media um, because he was running against George W. Bush. I, I don't, I mean, the, the what's frustrating, and we see this in the Nikki Haley news, we see this in Hogan, uh, our old friend, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu made some comments indicating he was thinking of running. I'm gonna be in the awkward position of telling a whole bunch of governors and former governors that I like, I'm not sure you should run for president this cycle. 
And I don't like being in that situation, but I've I remember 2016 and 2016 had a whole bunch of governors who I really liked running for president. Bobby Jindal was my favorite, but I liked Rick Perry a lot. Scott Walker had been uh, the Tea Party hero who had cut government and stood up to the public sector unions. Um, we just had an overflowing supply uh, of good conservative governors, senators, folks who had you know would have would have made great presidents. And the great irony, being a p- good potential president, is not necessarily what's going to get you the nomination. I wish it were different, but I have to look at reality. So for Larry Hogan, it's very hard to see a path to the nomination. It doesn't look all that different for Sununu and for that matter, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley brings a really exceptional resume to this. And I think she's got a lot of talent. I think there's a lot of reasons to like her. But right now, we've got Donald Trump who's got a big chunk of support. And we've got Ron DeSantis who's got a big chunk of support. If it's Trump versus non-Trump, non-Trump has a chance. If it's Trump versus seven or eight or a whole bunch of non-Trumps, well, then Trump's probably going to win. You're probably going to have a rerun of 2016. What we needed in 2016 was for all of the non-Trump candidates to follow Scott Walker's example and say, hey, you know what? If, if it's all of us against him, he's going to win. So we all got to unify behind somebody. Draw straws. Good good news, Ted Cruz. You're the guy. But it didn't happen. In fact, the day of, I run, to hear Ted Cruz tell it, he said to John Kasich, I'm dropping out so you can win. And then John Kasich turned out and dropped out the next day. It was a very weird thing where it went from three candidates to one overnight. Now, at that point, Trump was very, very likely to become the nominee. But it was just this extraordinarily frustrating set of circumstances. You couldn't get these other Republican candidates who had pre- were pretty clear were not going to win the nomination to drop out. So they kept eating 10 or 15 percent of the vote or some places less than that. But, you know, they kept no one was willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put aside my ambitions. I'm going to prioritize getting the best nominee we can. Please don't put us down that path again. So, you know, whether it's Nikki Haley, whether it's Larry Hogan, whether it's John Sununu, whether it's, you know, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, there are a lot of very impressive folks who say, I want to hand my, I want to throw my hat in the ring. I'm not going to tell them not to run. Well, maybe I will. I don't know. But the, I, I'm not going to tell you, know, like, can you throw, jump, throw your hat in the ring? Fine. But don't hang around. Don't run around in denial. Just accept it if you're, you know, if you're one of those five to ten percent candidates, it's not going to happen for you. And gracefully exit the stage. So we'll see what happens, Greg. I don't expect anyone to listen to me. <laughs> Two quick things here. There's a story going around. You know, Nikki Haley initially said uh, a while ago that if Trump was running, she wouldn't run this time, and then she changed her mind. But the story goes now that Trump has actually encouraged her to run. They talked about it, and he welcomes her into the race. And I'm thinking, well, of course he does. He wants as many others uh, in the race as possible. So, uh, Jim, here's my situation for accomplishing what you just mentioned there at the end. If people aren't getting any traction, you know, they need to get out before the contests actually start. Now that Tulsi Gabbard's not a Democrat, maybe she should run just so she can get into debates and kneecap these people like she did to Kamala Harris. <laughs> and clear, I, you know, Tulsi Gabbard people. moderate the debate. Um, you know, that, that's really the role we want her in to, you know, offer, you know, to really challenge somebody. Um, not just in the infamous Kamala Harris one, but her questioning of George Santos. That, you know, she may have found her calling. You know, she likes asking tough questions to people on live television and then watching them squirm because they've generally been able to avoid those tough questions. So uh, good for Tulsi Gabbard in that sense. We're in a situation. I wrote about this in the morning jolt, and I'm going to probably write about this more between now and, and, you know, when the votes start getting cast in the primary. We all have this attitude of like, wait, nobody should keep you out. If you feel like running for president, you go ahead and run for president. And in theory, that's a good idea. But then you end up with John Delaney running for president. 
or uh, Eric Swalwell, right? Bill de Blasio, right? Uh, I won't use the Jim Gilmore example again, but you, George Pataki, you just end up with so many people who really don't have any chance of running, but who want to feel important that you end up with 15 candidates or 20 candidates. And then you, you, know, you have to have two night debates and it just it just turns into a mess. So we kind of need to start discouraging people who really don't have a shot to see themselves more clearly, to recognize it and to stop mistaking a presidential campaign for a book tour. Anyway, that's my rant, and I suspect you'll be hearing me ranting about this more between now and when the votes are actually cast, Greg. Somewhere John Delaney is pounding a table going, I was in that race two and a half years before anybody voted. It's everybody else that crowded the field, not me. But you know, nobody I, knew who he was. The irony is when he was in there, I kinda, a couple of debate performances, I kind of liked him. He was like the designated driver in a crazy, <laughs> hard-left, progressive field. But uh, we kept saying, no, we, we can't afford that. What are you talking about? But... Uh, you know, and then Elizabeth Warren would, you know, smack him around and it would, you know, it didn't turn out well for him. But uh, again, you need to be more than a little known congressman if you want to run for president. That usually helps. Yeah, there's a reason no sitting congressman has been elected president since Garfield. So, uh, yeah, good luck with that. Consider that as people as you as you decide what to do for 24. Jim, have a great day. We'll uh, do it again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And uh, please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember to get us on those government surveillance devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Wednesday and join us again on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch.